Hi, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast, I Need to Effing Talk to You, where Ken and I will discuss everything that is relating to leadership and organizational culture. I'm your co-host, Russell Stratton, and my colleague, Ken Cameron. Um, In a couple of previous uh, episodes that people may have been listening to, uh, we've been delving into some of the content from our book, I Need to Effing Talk to You, The Art of Navigating Difficult Workplace Conversations. And one of the things we've talked about is the analogy that we use of of the four hats, which if you've uh, listened to that, you'll know a little bit about. If you're joining us for the first time, you may be thinking, what on earth are they talking about with the four hats? Ken, why don't you just uh, give us a recap on uh, what that analogy is all about? Sure. One of the things we talked about really early on in the podcast was that there's a difference between someone who's a bad person and someone who is exhibiting behavior that isn't helpful and that needs to change. And that it's not really helpful when you need to have a conversation with a colleague, coworker, boss, employee, customer, whatever conversation you need to have that you are not looking forward to that is a challenge. It's not really helpful when you go into that conversation and think of that person as a bad individual or as if something's wrong with them. Instead, it's much more helpful when you go into the conversation and realize that that is an individual who is exhibiting a behavior that needs to change. So it's um, it's bad behavior. It's not bad person. And so one of the things we invite our readers to do is to just change your thinking and to think of it as the person's got a behavior that they need to change and think of that behavior as if they're wearing a hat. They've got this hat on that doesn't suit them, doesn't serve anyone else in the organization. Maybe it's too big and it's blocking the view towards your uh, overall objective or your team goal. Or maybe it's just an otherwise ugly hat that is offending everyone else on the team, or it just looks ugly on them. And it's time for them to take that hat off and exchange that hat for a different, more constructive hat. Okay, and I think that's been been thank you, Ken, and that's been useful. I think with our uh, participants on our workshops for people to have that analogy that you can change behaviour in somebody in a similar way that you can change a hat. You can choose to take it off and put on, as you say, a more constructive, uh, more pleasant hat in the same way that you can choose to change your behaviour from something that's perhaps the negative to something that's more positive. Now, in the past, we've talked about the. Uh, the Viking helmet, and a couple of our recent episodes were looking at uh, the Vikings having invaded our organization. And that's often the one that people um, may perhaps recognize most obviously um, because of the type of behaviors it has, that more sort of either aggressive or passive-aggressive behavior where somebody is going to be quite clearly disagreeing with you, more likely to be in your face um, so to speak, in terms of their d- d- disagreement and vocalizing their unhappiness. But we also talk about another potentially problematic um, hat-wearing uh, personality type, which is the sun hat. Um, Ken, could you tell us a little bit more about what the sun hat is all about? Yeah, sure. And this is another type of personality that you'll find in an organization or type of behavior that you'll find in an organization. And this is the kind of person who essentially they would rather be on the beach, reading a novel, wearing a great big sun hat to protect them from the sun, then doing their actual job. So this is somebody who's, essentially this is somebody who's disengaged from their work and they're so disengaged, they might as well be there on the beach. They're kind of somebody who's contented. So like they might be saying that their situation feels good enough and they've really kind of got no reason to change. 
or as one of my colleagues and close friends who's become one of the actors that we use in our in our training said to me once when we were working together he's like today's going to be one of those days where we start off slow and then we ease off and this is quintessential sun hat behavior Okay, thanks, Ken. And I think we can probably all recognise some of that in our um, you know, colleagues, co-workers, team members we may have seen from time to time. So, you know, we see that person who seems to be quite happy to be doing what they're doing in the way that they've always done it and doesn't necessarily see any reason for change. And a lot of the things that we talk about on our uh, workshops, Ken, is about where people are need the, the organisation needs people to change what they do and how they do it. And the, the the Viking helmet tends to be a lot more, I'm not going to do this, you can't make me. Whereas the sun hat is, I don't see why I should be doing it. And can you give us a couple of examples of what you might hear a sun hat wearer saying? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, essentially, they might be saying something like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because everything's working fine just the way it is. We've been coasting along just fine. There may be the odd bump in the road, but it usually goes away on its own. And so why should we bother to change now, right? You might also hear this person saying something like, you know, maybe they've always been good at their job. And so now that something is changing, well, why do we need to change it? It's, it's been, as you've said, Russell, it's been good enough as it is. I've been good enough at this uh, up until now. Why do I need to go to that training course? Why do I need to learn this new software? The only way of doing it by, on, on paper by hand has been just fine. Uh, or maybe they already feel as if they're hitting their targets, or maybe they haven't hit their targets. Maybe they've fallen a little bit short of their target, but just a little bit short. Or maybe they've just kind of um, fallen quite a bit short of the targets, but you know the company seems to limp along from year to year, so I don't know why it's going to be any different this year. So those are all things you might hear from somebody who's wearing a sun hat. Absolutely. And then you saying that, Ken, gets me sort of think, thinking around here that, that some of this can be driven by um, – a comfort level that people have where they're just comfortable doing what they they do and um, people sometimes say i i just want the quiet life i, I don't i'm not looking for something fast-paced doesn't have to be exciting i'm quite happy to come in and just continue to do what i've always done and i remember talking to um some employees that i had like this once of saying well they said well, it, well what i've done today is no different to what i've been doing for the last 10 years you know, I'm basically doing the same thing now that I was doing 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, I was considered to be, you know, a great employee. And now you're telling me 10 years later that I'm not. And the point I said to them, he said, yeah, but the organization's not the, the now is not the organization it was 10 years ago. Now, the things that you did then might have been exactly what was required. But things have moved on. The expectations of the of the customer, the expectations of the organization, the expectations of your co-workers have changed. And I like your example of the, you know, doing it by, by paper. It's been like saying to people, if you said to them now, you know, we're, we're in the year, the age of the uh, the cell, the, you know, the, the cell, the smartphone that we can send, everything can be done on our phone, messaging, email, et cetera. And we said, no, no, you're not going to do any of that. You're going to get a quill pen out and you're going to write this letter very carefully in nice copper plate handwriting. And then you're going to seal it and you're going to have a minion that's going to go across and deliver it. People would look at you quite strangely. It'd be no good saying, well, you know, 150 years ago, people were quite happy to get that letter. You know, times change, and I think it happens in organizations, doesn't it? I agree. It really does, too. And I 
I one of the things that strikes me is is that this it's difficult sometimes for a leader to understand or empathize with somebody who's wearing who's willingly put on a sun hat. Um, you know, for, for, you can imagine somebody who's maybe you even have uh, uh, acquaintances who who feel this way that they they come to their their real life takes place outside of the job. They show up at their job, just as you just as you indicated, Russell, and they're doing the same. They've been doing the same job for ten years. They were really good at it ten years ago. They think they're really good at it now. It's the it, nothing's really changed, and they don't care that nothing has changed because that's not their life. Their life happens at home, or it happens in the community, or it happens in their social activities, or it's it, uh, their real passions revolve around their hobbies, um, and their job is literally just that. It's just a job. And I have discovered that the challenges that many leaders face is that leaders are often rise to the position of leadership because they're motivated by different things. They're motivated by success. They're motivated by a passion for the work. Um, they're interested or invested or engaged in the success of the company or the organization that they work for, or they have a passion to make a difference in the industry, or they love serving the customer that the organization serves. But for whatever reason, they are differently engaged with their job and with the work than the people that they work with are, than the sun hats that they work with are. And it can be, it can be a challenge to, uh, for a leader to build empathy with someone who comes towards their work with a very different attitude by wearing a sun hat. Yeah, that's a good point because I, I think, you know, uh, you know, there is that old adage, you know, do you, do you sort of live to work or work to live? And whilst I don't think either of us would be encouraging people that, you know, work is the be or one end of everything and that when you're looking at work-life balance, it should all be work and no no outside life. But I think you also see this point, particularly I found with um, uh, with entrepreneurs or people running their own business, when it's your business that you own and you've built it up from, from scratch or it's your project that you've taken and introduced in the organisation and you have some ownership for it, other people are... Um, not literally a hired hand, but you're being employed to do something. You're not, you don't have the ownership part of it because it's not your product. It's not your business. It's not your project. Whereas you're being hired to do a particular job at a particular time rather than it being your whole, the, the whole production is around you. Um, and I know that one of the things that we've worked at when we we've had sort of contracts out where we have our actors come and work with us um, is that we don't like people to feel that they are just coming in as a hired hand. We've got you to come in and do this particular piece for us and then off you go. We want them to feel that they're part of the organisation um, so they have some some stake in it. I suppose if they've got some stake in it, there's some skin in the game, it means something to them. If we're successful, they're successful. It's not just, you know, they can come in and you know, whatever they do will be good enough, <laughs> you know, and it, it makes, no, makes no difference. And we're really fortunate that the um, actors that we work with are the ones who, and we perhaps deliberately choose people who are engaged and enthusiastic and who are known for always doing a good job every time they show up. So we're lucky in that regard. And so, and because we get to pick and choose who we like to work with, those uh, we get to choose those particular individuals. But we've both been in situations where we've been with uh, em employees or coworkers or colleagues or even bosses who have been wearing the sun hat. Right. And I think we've and as I say, it's difficult when you're motivated or passionate individual to build some empathy with those individuals, particularly when the their their reasons 
for wearing their sun hats, such as, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I've always been good at this. I'm, I, I just, I almost on target. So what's the big fuss? Those kinds of statements are difficult for us to, 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 to hear or to, or to engage with because it really kind of sounds like rationalization. Right, like it sounds like an excuse for doing a poor job. I, well, I almost hit my target, or if it ain't broke, don't fix it. These things sound, as I say, like these are people who are rationalizing their their reason for saying no or their reason for resisting change. Yeah, and I think it's, it's interesting because you give a couple of sort of you know, you know causes of perhaps why people think in that way. Some was that you know, perhaps the organisations moved on in a direction that that they. Um, they don't see the reason for doing that, for, for moving in the same direction. Um, or people have a different motivation. Perhaps they're motivated more by what they do in their spare time and their hobbies than they do with their work. But I think we've also got a, an, another part I've come across in the past, and I'm sure you have, are people that at one point, is that, um, I say not quite disengaged, but in some ways sort of disappointed employees. So there are people who used to be very engaged with the organisation, and it bothered them whether the organization did well. They were, they were they were maybe at one time passionate about their job, but in some ways, um, you know, maybe successive change initiatives, a successive change of different managers with a different way that they want to do things. And they've sort of seen there, been there, seen it, got the T-shirt. And it's like, you know, we're, we're in our fourth transformation program. I remember working with one group. It's kind of like, this is the fourth transformation program I've been through. We've now ended up at the point we started at 15 years ago, going back in this circle of how we were going to transform the business. Successive numbers of senior management have come in and given this particular talk about how this is going to revolutionize the business. And in the reality for the people working on the ground, they didn't really see that it had made that much difference. And then for a lot of people, not make that much difference to their customers. It's just it was a different way. We had different uniforms, <laughs> this change and that change. Um, and they just got disgruntled. I suppose it's not disappointed, but just disgruntled with it. Like, oh, here we go again. You know, it's the same the same thing. Oh, you know, and a big sort of sigh and, uh, you know, waiting for uh waiting for that to finish knowing that you know in three years time that person's going to move on there'll be a new senior management and a new new initiative that's going to come in but i still like the first uh, word that you use because it indicates a progression you know you've gone from somebody who's been hopeful and engaged to somebody who's been a little bit tired to somebody who's then disappointed by these failed change efforts and then they become somebody who's disgruntled so they don't put on their sun hat all at once or by accident, according to the little kind of progression that you've laid out for us. I'm sure there are some that do, but um, the way that you've kind of described it is that they, they, they it kind of works towards that way. Maybe, maybe the first time it's a, it's a, it's a kerchief just to keep a little bit of the sun off their head. And then maybe it's a peaked baseball cap. And then after that, maybe the, only then does it become a full fledged sun hat before eventually it grows to a great big wide sombrero that protects them from everything. But it also, I think, perhaps, you know, just in thinking in that way, I was talking it through, it allows us an opportunity as leaders that it's not a lost cause. You know, often if we go back, there may be that there is a chink in there. If these people, if this individual or group was at one point good performers, 
they can be good performers again. If they were once engaged, they can be engaged again. You know, if they were once enthusiastic, they can be enthusiastic again. And, and trying to find out what it is that's that's happened. Is it the things that have happened in life outside that have, you know, meant that they've moved on? Or is it something that's happened in the organisation and do we have an opportunity to make an intervention using some of the tools and techniques that, that we, we talk about in our, our book and in our workshops that allow us to get that person back on track? Because we often talk about this is not about... You know, it's not about punishing people. You know, I need to effing talk to you. It's not about punishing people. That's when we really felt we have to talk about this. And also the other side is it often we're exasperated. But it could be so can we get people back up to that acceptable level of performance, acceptable level of behavior, acceptable level of attendance? Um, because it's going to be better for them as it is for, for us and our and co-workers. If we can, if we can get more people engaged and back up to performing as they can, that's good for everybody not least of all, for them. Yeah, I agree. And we've got some some quotes and, st- uh, sorry, we've quoted some statistics to be able to share with our listeners about the impact that a somebody who's wearing a sun hat in your organization can have. Um, Russell, do you have those at hand? I, I, I do, yeah. Um, so there was the, the one that, that particularly uh, struck, struck me was when we were putting a, a fi- financial figure on this. So, so 18 hours a week that employees spend surfing the internet equals $759 billion in total salary costs for employers if we went across multiplying out, if that was every employee we had. Now, obviously, some aren't doing that, some are, but lost opportunity, you know, $759 billion um, in, in, in lost activity because people were doing something simply as, as, as surfing the internet um, if we could reduce that to only nine hours, that's a lot of money <laughs> that we could, we could do, just as one example. Yeah, and you know, Russell, the the, the same place where we're citing this from the um, is the it says that you say not every worker, and yet the 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 same uh, statistic here is that the average worker admits to frittering away three hours out of their eight hour workday, which which doesn't include lunch and other scheduled breaks. So that's that's three hours out of an eight hour workday. So that that's a big chunk of time, as you suggested, Russell. It's not everybody, but this particular study was. It says that it's the average worker. So it's certainly a large proportion of your employees. And these statistics that Russell and I are citing, by the way, you can tell we're both reading from the same book. It's our book. It's from the I Need to Effing Talk to You book, page 98 for those who are following along, um, available on Amazon for those who aren't yet following along. You can find it there. But there's also a couple of other statistics that we've got cited here, Russell. What else is uh, what else leaps out to you from this from this study here? Well, there was one that 64% of workers admit to using the internet for personal purposes during the work hours. Yeah, 65% of YouTube viewers watch between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. on weekdays which is presumably when they're at work because not everybody, we haven't got everybody that works nights. You know, there's, they, they were a couple that, 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 that sprung to mind. And I'm also seeing I'm also seeing some statistics here around Facebook. So there's so seventy seventy seven percent of workers uh, admit they're using their Facebook while at work, and then fully a third of those say that they only use Facebook while they're at work. Presumably because they don't want their Facebook use to impinge upon their valuable private time, as they don't mind so much if it's on their, impinging on their work time. One of the things that came to me when, when we are rereading these um, just now is that 
I've seen some initiatives that organisations have done to to try and, and, and minimise some of this. Um, so, you know, we're going to lock it down. We're not going to let people have the internet. Um, we're going to monitor everything that they do at their workplace. You know, the places where they have cameras above the desk so they can see what they're doing. Um, or the call centre one where people have to raise their hand if they want to go to the bathroom as if they're in sort of, you know, elementary school. Um, and down to certain... Um, you know, time-saving advices. And one organisation I was working with who reckoned that the lost time, now I mean, we were talking here about three hours, Yeah, they were saying, well, the time spent between when you switch your computer on, the time it takes for it to, to boot up and log in for you, that was, I don't know, it was something like 90 seconds. Well, if you extrapolate 90 seconds per day and they worked out this calculation with what you could do with those 90 seconds every day that was going to be more productive. Now, you know, I, some of those things, I, I, I admit, and not being somebody who's perhaps a normally a sun hat wearer, had got me considering it because, like, you know, at what point are we over over monitor, uh, you know, monitoring people here that, you know, we can't let people have 90 seconds while they perhaps their computer boots up while they go and grab a coffee but you know we're not perhaps dealing with the with the three hours a day. So I think well I think what was it? Do we want to put those punitive measures in place, or are we better focusing on understanding why people feel that that was the best use of their time? Is it because they're not engaged with their work? Is it because they're not interested? Are we not inspiring people? Haven't we set the challenge for people to be the best they can be? Because as a leader, perhaps we'd be better focused on those type of activities, more leadership activities, and less of the managerial and punitive activities of, you know, I need you to record your whole day down to the last 15 minutes. And then people spend their time filling in a form that shows what they spent themselves doing every 15 minutes. And I've, I've worked somewhere where people did that. Every 15 minutes, they would stop and write down what they just done for the previous 15 minutes. which took 15 minutes so i think (laughs) and the interesting thing with that of course is that when these statistics were brought up and created and they created this power productivity plans that they went off to some you know some some, um, hub somewhere where it was going to uh like a death star i think it was it went off there to be analyzed and then the reports would come back on how efficiencies could be made and, and the problem was is that half the time people either just falsified it because they weren't, I'm going to sit there for every 15 minutes saying what I do. So they weren't particularly accurate. And when they did go there, nothing really happened with it because the information that came back didn't really give um, uh, the managers anything that you could use. There wasn't really, okay, so you spent, you know, they weren't going to put down they spent 15 minutes on Facebook. So the statistics, it became useless. People were spending time creating statistics and reports that were really of no use to anybody. Um, and you thought, wouldn't it have been better if we'd invested our time in something more productive? And it really resonates with me when you say that the the information went out, but then nothing changed. And so the people kind of get tired of, or they become disgruntled, to use the phrase that you used, disappointed, to use the phrases you used earlier, um, about the fact that there's all this constant churn, there's all this constant change, but nothing ever seems to change, right? And I saw this uh, firsthand when I was working for a city organization on a transformation project. I had to go from uh, department to department. And when I got to some of those, the frontline workers, people in hard hats and work boots and overalls, and I noticed that we would, we, we, I would jo- join this group for this conversation to ask them about their organizational culture. And I was met with crossed arms, 
and you know people leaning way back in their in their seats or on their benches and with their legs man split open as if in challenge you know just waiting for me to uh impart whatever new change this was going to be about so they could just suffer through this meeting and then they could either go home or get back to work whichever was more important to them or whichever part of the day that we had we had showed up in to interrupt their actual work um and i found that that attitude was really rooted in just what you've described it was in that same meeting that someone challenged us and said, is this going to be another one of those initiatives that comes from the palace and comes down to us down here working out in the fields? Or is this actually something that's actually going to change and actually going to make my work life better? Or is it just going to be another one of those things that makes my work life harder, more of a drudgery, more of a, of a, of a useless effort? And I think they felt it was, no matter how much I tried to convince them of, they felt it was the latter. And, and I think that sometimes, Ken, when it comes that disconnect sometimes between the headquarters and the operations in the field, and not a, a good enough job has been done of selling the benefits to the people in the operational job as to what, how this is going to make their job better, easier, more effective, how they're going to provide a better service or better product, and tends to be couched in terms of how this is going to look good um, from a headquarters perspective. You know, if this is my, this is going to make my career. If this, if this, if this project goes well, um, and it's going to make us look good here, and not necessarily what it's going to benefit the people on the ground. And I think sometimes people do a very good job at doing that, making that connection. Sometimes not so good, just a good job. And I think sometimes some of the things that you've mentioned there um, can be the out the outcome because people are just saying, I don't, I don't see how how what's in it for me. How does this benefit my job? How does it benefit our customers? If I can't see how it does that, then it's just another headquarters initiative um and something i wanted to come back to you you mentioned around the people being disappointed or um disgruntled and uh, i remember my my late father um had worked for the when he came out of the, the the army he had worked for the transit company in um in london so there was the bus company in london worked for them for probably close on 30 years um, and one of the things that i noticed as him as i was sort of you know growing growing up of the change in him at work um, to a point of a sort of probably a five, six-year period towards the end of his career there of a real feeling of disgruntlement and also disappointment with the organisation. Um, and I, I, what I, you know, when we were writing the book, one of the things I was thinking about and that example of somebody who was very much demonstrated sun hat behaviour uh, um, but it was, that, it was that sort of fed up behaviour and it was like, Part of this came because of, of, of change and the organisation changing, but it was a feeling of, of of being undervalued. And just a couple of examples of how this sort of manifested itself as he would see it. You know, the, organi- the team he was in went from being 20 people over gradually cut back, cut back, cut back to four people. It went from having um, a dedicated... Um, office space of two or three offices in a central London location to um, one or one big office, open plan, in, in uh, the sort of suburbs in London to ultimately coming down to being um, one of those sort of porter cabins that we have um, that was at the back of the bu- a bus station out of sight 
with 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 no with only a little bit of manual of, of uh, natural light through one little window, no bathroom, and they had to use a public washroom that was in the bus station. And it was it was so there was one thing in there. We sort of went the team just reducing in size continually. The second thing was that the accommodation that we worked of got gradually and gradually you know less money was spent on it until we were working out of sort of just a, a, you know, a porter cabin. And the other thing was the amount of contact they had from um, their their sort of management headquarters. It used to be a monthly meeting, oh, sorry, a weekly meeting when the man would come down and visit. Then it became a weekly phone call and ultimately came down to um, finding that they were left off of a memo that went out to all employees and they'd been left off in their porter cabin. So that and amongst other things, um, it was just that gradual feeling that the the job role, which at one point was seen to be an important job role, went to be seen to be less and less important and less and less important to the organisation. And as a result, I think, for the employees that were left, was the feeling, well, why should I feel any, you know, um, engagement with my job or pride in my job when as an organisation, you don't really have any pride in this job anyway. It's like a, it went from being a, a considered a reasonably important job to an unimportant job. And, and that was interesting, I think, in perhaps some of the explanation for, for my father and a couple of his colleagues for their drift into sun hat wearing, where it just sort of, what are they, what are they going to take away from us next? You know, mm-hmm. one thing after yeah, another. I understand. Yeah, I found it really interesting. In the course of telling that story, Russell, I don't know if you heard yourself say, but the, the your use of pronoun changed. You were telling the story about your father, and, but at a certain point you started saying, this happened to us. Then we got moved, and we got moved to this point, uh-huh. and we got moved to another point. So it says, which I think is, in, the, it, in one sense, I mean, you certainly lived with your father and you watched how this um, how this impacted your father, and how it impacted your father's life. But it, it also suggests to us that the impact on an employee goes, it has ripple effects beyond the employee. It does impact their their children. Yeah, and I, and I think so. It brings back in that, and again, uh, without getting all too um, you know too touchy feely about it, but it's about a feeling of self worth and seeing somebody um, that I was close to going from this feeling of positivity about himself to well, I don't really amount to much. Is this is this is this it? Is this all I'm worth? You know, I, I, I get to work in a porter cabin. I have to go to the washroom down the street. Um, and the other thing was we you know, we used to get a new set of uniform every year. Now we don't. We have to buy something ourselves. You know, is that, that really what it's what it's come to? It's really we're, we're just we're just there and we pick up a paycheck at the end of the month. Um, and I think a lot of the issues um, that my, my father suffered at that stage in his life a lot of them were driven by his, his, his feeling of a lack of worth at work by the changes that have gone on at, at, at the workplace. Stand. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You know, I, I watched my mother go through something that was quite different, but uh, just talking about our parents reminded me of something. But she also experienced um, working with the sun hats in a sense. Um, my mother was a very driven individual. Oh, sorry, still is. She's still alive. I want to make sure I credit that. She is a very driven individual. And throughout her life, she was a very um, uh, community-minded, driven person. She was a teacher. But she also grew up with a very uh, tight uh, uh, connection to 
the various communities in which she lived. And when I took on a role in theater and started working in theater, I worked for our local um, uh, local com- community theater in Port Stanley, Ontario. And at that point, it had entered a, a financial crisis. And it was in order to get themselves out of this crisis, when one artistic director left, another one came in, they transitioned from being an, uh, a, a, a mostly amateur company into being a professional summer theater company. And my mother, having engaged in, in theater through me, really, um, jo- um, joined the board of that organization even after I left. And it, in fact, she didn't join until I'd left because she felt that might be a conflict of interest. But she then became committed to that organization because she was the kind of person who was the kind of leader that we describe, somebody who, when she throws herself into something, throws herself 110% into something. And she uh, rose as as that organization struggled, and they they ended up having to buy the building. And as they they and the audience was growing, and that was really great. But they also had all these other financial obligations. So she, um, and being the most in, in driven and engaged individual, she quickly rose to become the president of this uh, of this volunteer board of this organization. And she would often report to me her immense frustration with her fellow board members. And I came to realize in uh, with a kind of 2020 hindsight and uh, that that expression, I, which I've coined just now is, you know, you've got 2020 hindsight, but it was 20 years ago. So that's that's how good my perspective is on it is. So my 2020 hindsight suggests that maybe part of the problem was that they weren't as invested as she was and she was expecting everyone else to be as invested as she was for the same reasons. And in fact, these other people had joined the board for very different reasons than she had. She had joined because she saw the organization was in trouble. So she knew what the stakes were. She knew that the organization needed to um, work hard and engage the community and fundraise in order to meet its targets. Other board members to whom this path was not as clear had joined for different reasons. They joined because they liked going to the opening nights. They joined because they liked being part of the community. Or they joined because they thought it would be glamorous. And so there was this issue around disconnect. And what I came to realize was that the issue was because that the organization itself set unclear expectations of its volunteers. Right. And no, it, not with all volunteers, of course. I mean, if you showed up as an usher, your volunteer uh, job was very clear. Right. And they were very good at making sure you knew what those job, what those volunteer roles were. If you were hired as employed as an actor for a paycheck, you knew what your role was. You were going to be an actor in this production or you were going to be a, um, uh, you know, a stage manager or someone behind the scenes. And you may be a young person, as I was. and You may not know all of the ropes, but you at least knew what your role was. But I think for these board members, it was much more amorphous. And so one of the things that I think we both do now when we lead board retreats is we make sure that one of the key things we do is making sure that all board members know what their role is, make sure that those job descriptions are written down, make sure that all the board members sign off and commit to it. And then we also make sure that goes into a handbook so that future board members don't end up making that same mistake. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Ken, because I think it comes, you know, with, with boards, you've noticed that particularly, you know, you, you say you mentioned board retreats and we've sat on boards. I've sat on a couple of boards I do at the moment where we can you can you can find that occasionally. People's motivation for, for why they've joined it can be different. Um but but also it's just seeing in, in, in employment in general of ensuring that people have a clear understanding of expectations. And I think it was the Ken Blanchard, the author of the One Minute Manager series, who'd um done an exercise on one of his workshops where he had um, 
managers in one room writing down what they thought their employees were responsible for in their job and the employees writing in another room what they thought they were responsible for in their job. And when you compare the two lists, rather than them perhaps overlapping with a, you know, maybe 80% similar with a couple of differentials, it was like about 30% similar and 70% differentials because what people thought they were supposed to be doing was not what their manager thought they were supposed to be doing. Um, and it went beyond just having the job description really. The job description hasn't changed for 10 years. It's the same thing. Are we regularly reviewing it? Are we going in and finding specifically what does this mean? Can I be able to articulate this to somebody as to what I need them to do? Because if I can do that and why it's important, then that's sort of my, one of my favorites, a 21st century question. If you can explain to people why they need to be doing something, then they're more likely to be engaged. If you can't tell them why they're doing it, then just say, well, you're, you're, I'm your boss. You need to do what I say. Doesn't really cut it in, in 21st century business. It might have done mid-20th century, but not 21st century. One of the things we're starting to touch on here, Russell, is the notion that um, you don't have to be a, just an employee to be wearing a sun hat. We've talked about we talked about a couple of different kinds of employees. We also talked about volunteers who can be wearing a sun hat. As one of the examples were these volunteer board members who technically are the boss of the of the CEO or the executive director or whatever it might be of that particular charity. But it, so we're verging into the idea that anybody can be wearing a sun hat. And so we've also hear from some of our participants in our workshops that a boss can also be wearing a sun hat. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I, I can I can think of an example of unfortunately probably more than one example of people I work for who had um a, a, a sun hat mentality. And, and and thinking of one particularly, a gentleman by the name of Stan, we'll just leave it at that. Um, but you know, he's there were a couple of things that I noticed about that were signals to me of sun hat behavior. Uh, one is that he used to have um uh, a sports jacket that hang on the hung on the back of his chair. Um, now, for those that didn't know, it would sort of give the impression that when you walked into his office, his jacket was on the back of his chair. He was probably just walked away from his desk and would be back any moment. So he was busy doing something. Those of us that knew him and got to know him a little bit better found out that this wasn't the case. He just used to leave that there permanently. So when he wandered off somewhere else... Um, it just gave the impression that he was doing something. It, well, there was no purpose. It was just it was done as a prop, so to speak, to give the impression when um, often he, no one had seen him all morning, or he'd come in late, or he'd been out for breakfast, or had an extended lunch, or something like this. The other thing I noticed for him was that he had a piece of ad advice to me uh, when I first worked for him that he suggested two things, well, two pieces of advice. One, never volunteer for anything. That was his first thing. Never volunteer. Because as he said, management, which he referred to as being the people above him in the sort of more middle, middle, he was first line management, so probably middle and senior management, never volunteer for anything. They're always looking for volunteers. So don't volunteer for anything. And his second thing was, if you ever move out from our, the, our offices and you go out across the other seven floors of the building, always carry a piece of paper in your hand. So if you come across somebody that he referred to as management, rather than hurry past them, you look them directly in the eye, holding your piece of paper. They would think that you were going to ask them a question, so they would look away and walk away, and therefore they wouldn't disturb you. So there's these ideas. Now, never volunteer for anything and walk around with a piece of paper, make it look like you were doing something. And the only thing that sort of came to me as to the implication for some of this sun hat behaviour 
was after he left and he'd retired. And the following year, we were doing our resource allocation for the number of stations and how many people working there. And I was asked by his replacement, can you get me the figures that Stan used last year to do the resource allocation? So I said, well, I think they're in the filing cabinet. This is pre-computer uh, computerization. So I was, you know, for, for those listeners that can can um, can look back that far, you know, the, the, there was a time when we didn't everybody had a laptop and personal computer. So I went to the filing cabinet and I extracted this Manila file, and I brought it in. And then I I saw it. I thought, oh, what am I gonna, what am I going to say to my new boss? Because inside this was Stan's calculations, and it consisted of a cigarette packet that had been broken open and he jotted some thoughts down on there. Um, and attached to that with a paper clip was a stained beer mat from the local bar that he'd also written some other statistics on. And, and that's how he based it. So when I had to show this to my new then boss and say, this is what Stan did last year, um, of course, they were totally... Uh, one non-plus, secondly annoyed because they were, we were going to have to go to a meeting in a couple of days' time and present the projections for next year. And all we were basing off was off the back of a cigarette packet and a, a used beer coaster, um, without any any real rationale for why he'd got these figures. And it sort of got in my mind is that actually Stan's probably done this for a number of years. He just put this together on the back of a cigarette packet which I thought, you know, how accurate were these figures? But the second thing that always occurred to me is no one ever queried it. So no one had ever come back and said, Stan, where did you get these figures from? So, you know, perhaps he perhaps he wasn't so foolish after all. He'd, uh, he'd done it over his extended lunch with a pint in his hand and uh, um, that, that's where he got. But I don't want people to take away from here that our suggestion, Ken, is that people should just, no, don't bother running this. Just go to the pub and just write it on the back of a cigarette packet and everything's good. But uh, a couple of examples that there was even bosses that had this sun hat behaviour, not just employees. So you you may have to have the same kind of challenging conversation with your boss that you might be having with your with your the your direct reports. So you never know. But understanding what's driving these individuals, understanding what's behind these individuals, understanding what is the 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 underlying reasons behind their you, even their unconscious decision to put on a sun hat just helps you have a little bit more empathy, helps you understand how they got to the place that they got, and helps you remember that to, to go back to something you said at the very beginning of this podcast, Russell, if they were once good performers, then they can be good performers again. Absolutely, and that, and that's really the, 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 what sort of what we're what we're looking to do, and certainly with the work we've put in our workshops and also in the book, is about how can we help people be able to get to a position where we can get people back on track. You know, it's not simply about being punitive. It's about trying to get people back on track. So uh, this is pretty much brings us to the end, but there is something that we've got coming up in one of our future podcasts down the line. Um, we shared a couple of, a number of stories to today, um, and we touched upon some sort of bad boss behavior. So um, we'd like to uh, extend the invitation to you that in a future podcast, we're going to be sharing some of our worst boss stories, um, not just from Ken and I's experience, but also from uh, experience of our clients and some and, and others. So if you've got a worst boss story that you think you'd like to hear um, described over the air, 
Uh, please send that to us. Put it in the comments below um, or fire us a, an email through in our contact details there, and uh, we'll be happy to share that share that on air. And you can obviously disguise the name as we've done today or uh, to protect the innocent or guilty, uh, or you can go straight on and say who it was. I don't, I don't mind. But uh, it would be nice to get some uh, some examples from our listeners uh, just to sort of share. So any worst birth stories, uh, please let us have those, and they'll be coming up on a future podcast in the next couple of weeks or so. And if you find you're out at the pub and the you're sitting there with your colleagues and the stories of your worst bosses start to come out over a pint of beer, then just crack open the nearest cigarette packet or in this day and age, vape package, if you happen to have that. Or if, you're, if you've kicked the nicotine habit, then grab a stained beer mat, write out your the bullet point, your, your, um, your boss stories, or even worse, pull out your, or sorry, even better, Pull out your iPhones and go to I need to effing talk to you.com. Uh, click on the contact us button there and then type your worst boss story directly into the uh, the contact link and send us the email right away while still fresh in your mind. That, that sounds great. Uh, I hope people have enjoyed uh, our, our latest podcast. We'll see you soon. Um, goodbye from me, Ken. And we'll see you later. Thank you very much, everybody. Okay, thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye.